Yep. Okay, go ahead. Wonderful. Good stuff. Good way to start out the book of Ephesians with a psalm. Okay. Um, let's see here. We got, uh, uh, we're alive. No problem there. And uh, let's see. There's something else I need to. Oh, got an announcement. Before I do anything else, I want to make sure I don't forget this. Okay. Um, uh, well, I wrote it somewhere. Spring forward, March 14th. Not this Saturday. Next Saturday. Next Saturday, spring forward. I'm telling you that now. I will remind you that on Sunday. So if you're late for church, then it's because you didn't pay attention. Because I think we lose an hour of sleep. Is that right? Yeah, spring forward. Yes. Spring, spring forward. Not this week, but next week. The 14th of March. Or actually, set, uh, the 13th. Not this Saturday. Next Saturday. Next Saturday. Okay, everybody got that? All right. We and, didn't get it. Okay. The 13th is Saturday the 13th. Not this Saturday. Next Saturday. What's next Saturday? Spring forward. Here she's, she's, okay, here we go. Um, all right, um, we've got uh, that, and then we are live. I said that, and we've read that. Okay, we need to get started here. We're going to start with this day in Christian history. Today is the 4th of uh, March. All right, oh, while I'm looking for the page for March, we have a visitor just walked right in from uh North of Detroit, by one hour north of Detroit, which means it's a little colder there right now than it is here. But it's Larry, and say your name out loud again. Bullier. You know, if I... Port Huron, Michigan. Port Huron, Michigan. And if he spelled me his name, and I said, oh, that's French. And as soon as I said that, I keep wanting to say something like Bullier. And so I can't remember his name now because of that. I, I should have just went with the American... Uh, uh, pronunciation and it's wonderful to have you here sir okay march 4th sometimes things get worse before they get better born in 1516 mary tudor was the only surviving child of king henry the eighth and his first wife catherine of aragon since mary's mother was spanish the daughter of king ferdinand ii of aragon and since her father even after breaking with the church of rome still maintained basically roman catholic beliefs Mary was raised a Roman Catholic. When she was 15, her parents divorced, and she and her mother went into separate exiles, never to see one another again. At 17, after the birth of her half-sister, Elizabeth, and the declaration that her parents' marriage was void, Mary was declared a bastard, losing her title of princess and her right of succession to the throne. Since she believed her problems were primarily due to the Reformation in England, she clung tenaciously to Roman Catholicism, finding solace in her faith. After Parliament revoked her parents' annulment and restored her legitimacy, Mary returned to prominence and became vocal about her Catholicism. 
1544, Henry VIII wrote his will designating the order of succession to the throne after his death. It would be his only son, Edward, Mary, and then Elizabeth, if either of the first two died without having produced an heir. At the death of Henry VIII, his nine-year-old son, Edward, succeeded him, becoming King Edward VI, a godly boy. Edward moved England decisively toward Protestantism. Mary liked him, but not his evangelical faith. Suffering from congenital syphilis, he died from tuberculosis at 15. A few weeks before his death, without authorization from Parliament, he amended his father's will by naming his cousin Lady Jane Grey, also an evangelical, as his successor instead of his sister Mary. Jane Grey's reign lasted just nine days before she was replaced by Mary, who became Queen and Queen Mary I in 1553. Upon becoming queen, Mary set about returning England to its Roman Catholic roots. At first, Mary dealt tolerantly with Protestants, hoping to convert them to Catholicism. She declared that she would not compel or constrain consciences in the matter of religious beliefs. This was one of the first statements of religious tolerance by a modern government. But within weeks, her early popularity was gone as England came to view her as a Spaniard first and only second as an English tutor. She was not overly attractive, and uh, Edward VI had inherited congenital syphilis. This got her several severe headaches, uh, poor eyesight, and chronic rhinitis. I wasn't laughing about the syphilis. I was laughing about the not being good-looking. And chronic rhinitis that caused her perpetual foul breath. She endeared herself to no one. Mary quickly realized that her lenient approach with the Protestants was not working. Although they were in the minority, they were financially powerful. Mary feared a Protestant revolt would place her Protestant half-sister, Elizabeth, on the throne. Therefore, on March 4th of 1554, Mary issued an edict that reinstated Catholic worship and outlawed Protestantism and other heresies. She earned the title Bloody Mary in enforcing the edict, following the advice of her advisors to kill anyone who threatened her. Lady J. Gr Lady Jane Grey, her husband, and her father were executed, as well as a hundred other rebels who were part of a Protestant plot to take back the throne. Mary also held her half-sister, Elizabeth, in the Tower of London for months while investigating her role in the plot. Elizabeth survived, eventually succeeding Mary as queen. In 1555, the Reign of Terror began with the execution of Protestant clergymen who refused to accept the re-established Catholic creed. Heretics were given a chance to recant. If they did not, they were burned at the stake. Most prominent were Thomas Cranmer, Archbishop, Archbishop of Canterbury, and deposed bishops Latimer <coughs> excuse me, and Ridley. Many Protestant ministers and leaders were executed, but most martyrs were lay people who had been converted to Christ as the Reformation spread through England. In all, Bloody's Mary Reign of Terror claimed the lives of more than 300 Protestants. It ended with her death in 1558. Reader, much more endearing. Yes, 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 much more endearing. Bloody Mary ruled like a terrorist. She killed her opposition. What a contrast to Jesus Christ. He gave his life for those who were his enemies. And Colossians 1, 22, 1 21 and 22 you were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions, and yet now he has brought you back as his friends. 
He has done this through his death. You know, I wonder if people back then actually read their Bible and see that because I, what God, let me just do it. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Yeah. Put asunder. I mean, yeah. they annulled her parents. Well, she probably annulled her marriage before she had him whacked. So, you know, it's just insane. Just crazy, the, the thinking of well, you know what? It goes on today, and the uh, the guy that is uh, currently in the popish seat is, a, I can't think of anybody that's more harmful to the faith. And, you know, it, I put it under the umbrella because everybody looks at Christianity, they think of the Pope. I'm talking about non-Christians around the world. But he's more harmful to what would be considered the faith than any person I can believe. I can't even imagine because... It's not like her where she's just secluded on a little island without communications. He's all over the world putting out nonsense, absolute terrible nonsense. We'll see some of it on Saturday, Sunday unless, uh, unless uh, you know, gets OBE. But for right now, I, uh, you know, I, when I was writing my commentary on Ephesians, some of the books that I wrote a while ago, like Galatians, I did not write a uh, preface. You know, I just kind of introduced one paragraph and then got into it, whereas later commentaries I've written, I've done a preface. But um, Burke, being ever uh, ever on uh, on the ball, brought me two commentaries and said, oh, you can read one of these. And so uh, uh, he gave me one from Chuck Swindoll, which I'm not going to read. It's about five pages long, and uh, he's still alive. And so I'm not going to, uh, uh, you know, even though I don't know the guy, if somebody heard me reading Chuck Swindoll's commentary on Ephesians, he might say, well, I didn't want him to do that. So I just don't. But this other guy, John Phillips, I think we both think he's dead. And so I'll read John Phillips. Uh, it's shorter. It's probably not as uh, involved as Chuck Swindoll's, but John Phillips is a good writer. So we'll read his preface because I didn't write one. Okay. In some ways, the city of Ephesus is unique in the New Testament. It was not a religious center like Jerusalem, a culture, cultural center like Athens, or a political center like Rome. It was a Christian center. Pagans knew the city as a center of heathen activities. Its famous Temple of Diana, or some translations say Artemis, was known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world and a source of terrible moral and spiritual pollution. But Ephesus is known around the world today not because of the temple that attracted thousands to its courts and courtesans, not because of its trade, but because of the biblical truth that was taught there. Ephesus is known to all who know the Bible. And that's true. That's anybody that hears the term Ephesians thinks of the Bible. Um, biblical, just so you know, biblical is a, what type of a word is it? Is it an adjective, an adverb? Is it a biblical? It's an adjective. That's correct. And therefore, it should not be capitalized. So I'm giving John Phillips one demerit for capitalizing <laughs> biblical. Now, don't get me wrong. I make more mistakes in typing than any person you will ever see. Burke has to correct my typing after I publish my sermon before I put it on YouTube sometimes, which he did this past Sunday. So uh, I'm just picking on John Phillips because he, he said... Oh, B Burke may have done that. So you typed this from his commentary. Okay. Uh, but if you cut and pasted it, then you didn't do it. But either way, um, okay, well, then you didn't do it. Okay. So um, biblical and scriptural, those words are not to be capitalized, whereas scripture and Bible are. Okay. And I'm just telling that for general reference. Okay. So we'll go on. Paul spent several years in Ephesus and a truly great church resulted from his ministry. Paul's final farewell words to the Ephesian elders reveal, 
reveal how diligently he had preached and pastored there. That's found in Acts chapter 20, by the way. Mark and the Apostle John also ministered in Ephesus. Timothy is believed to have been martyred there for denouncing the licentiousness of a feast of Diana. It was from Ephesus that John was exiled to the offshore island of Patmos, okay? During that exile, he wrote to Ephesus one of the seven, one of the letters to the seven churches. <clears throat> In that letter, dictated personally by the ascended Lord, he exposed the church's lack of love for the Lord Jesus. And that's found in Revelation 2, 1 through 7. Their labors were commended, their loyalty was praised, but their lack of love was lamented. The Lord took this lack of love for himself so seriously that he warned that if there were no repentance and revival, he would remove the lampstand. Light without love is a barren thing. The Lord has no use for a church that no longer loves him. When Paul wrote his Ephesian letter, the events foreseen by John were still over the horizon. Yet the warnings Paul had issued several years before in his farewell to the Ephesian elders at Miletus showed that he had his own private fears. The onslaught of a cult at nearby Colossae alerted Paul to growing dangers, but what destroyed the Ephesian church in the end was not falsehood, but formality. It became, so to speak, a cold, fundamental, orthodox, evangelical, Bible-believing church that lacked even a spark of its original love for Christ. As we read this Ephesian letter, what impresses us is Paul's emphasis on love. He told us about our blessings, he talked about our behavior, and he warned us about our battles. But it is our beloved Christ who dominates it all. Come then, join, and he says, John Phillips says, join me in this tour of this letter. I will amend that and say, come then, join us in a tour of this letter, perhaps the grandest of all Paul's epistles. Doctrine will thrill us in the book of Romans, and discipline will confront us in Corinthians. We will read of deliverance in Galatians, deception in Colossians, discord in Philippians, duty in Philemon, and discovery in Thessalonians. But in Ephesians, devotion is the theme. There Paul was saying, take another look at beloved, at the beloved. Fall in love with him afresh. He is the chiefest among 10,000, the altogether lovely one, fairer than fair, the glorious bridegroom of our hearts. In his matchless love, John Phillips. So, good stuff there. <clears throat> okay, so. Ephesus was the city that got letters from two apostles. That's right. One was John and one was uh, Paul. That's right. Yeah. That's absolutely right. So, two yeah. apostles read to him. The what? The others did no, not that, have No, that's absolutely right. Yeah, the second one was not a privilege by any way, shape, or form. Yeah, that's right. Um, okay, so we are in Ephesians. I've got to get a uh, book marker and put it there now so that I uh, am right on mark with you guys. Okay, Ephesians. I'm going to put that one there and this one goes somewhere else. Okay, and uh, you can start with uh, whatever verse you want, but I would suggest you start with 1-1, one, one, okay? That would make sense. Yes. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Okay, that's very close. There's two words that are different, and they're not even consequential, so I'm not going to reread this version. <laughs> Excuse me. Okay, um, as always, just in case somebody has decided they want to watch the uh, uh, 
epistle to the Ephesians on YouTube later, and they don't know anything about this church, and they just click on it. I uh, wrote a commentary on the book of Ephesians years and years ago. I don't know how long, maybe five, six, seven years ago. And uh, so when I do a Bible study, I read from my notes. I try not to do things off the top of my own head because my own head doesn't have a lot on top of it. Um, but uh, my commentaries are always typed about three o'clock in the morning when there's nobody around, maybe four o'clock in the morning. There's nobody around. There aren't dogs barking and I can sit and talk to the Lord and type my commentary. So I do that every single morning. And right now we're in Revelation 12, but I'm typing Revelation 13. So, um, and that's in case I get sick or run over or something. I'm in the hospital for a couple of weeks. Then I, I won't get behind. So I always st try to stay 10 to 15 verses ahead of what I'm putting out. Same as the sermons too, is that uh, the sermons are all typed about 10 weeks in advance. And so uh, uh, what did I type? Oh, good stuff this Monday. Good stuff. Anyway, um, but uh, this week, before we get into Ephesians, Deuteronomy 14, 1 and 2, it's called Sons of the Lord God, people that want to hear about the Nephilim. I'll talk about the Nephilim in uh, a little bit during that, because who are the sons of God, okay? Uh, it's very consistent in Scripture, and uh, uh, you'll find out, and I'll defend the view that I give. It is the correct view, and if uh, you feel otherwise, that is absolutely fine. I don't argue that with people. They can be as wrong as they want. Okay. Two verses. Two, yeah, two verses this week. Yeah, one and two. Okay. And it sets the stage because we have uh, uh, four, I think four sermons, maybe three sermons coming in uh, Deuteronomy 14. And Deuteronomy 14, 28 to the end of the chapter will be the final tithing sermon that I do. I, actually, I'll, I'll mention it in uh, uh, Deuteronomy 26, verse 12, because it is mentioned there in the third year, the year of the tithe. And then when we get to Amos 4.4 4 in the year 2273, I will refer to tithing again. But other than that, um, this if you want to know uh, why tithing is not a New Testament precept in any way, shape, or form, uh, if you believe that you are to be tithing, then you probably need to uh, watch this sermon because you will find out that, one, not only is it not a New Testament principle, but what is taught in tithing in the Old Testament has nothing to do with what tithing preachers teach in New Testament churches. I think I said New Testament, I meant Old Testament, what's taught in the Old Testament. Um, very quickly, just to set the, uh, the uh, tone for what's coming in two weeks with that sermon, is that in the Old Testament, when they tithed, which they did, they tithed every single year, 10% of their wealth, they tithed. The first two years, their tithe was consumed by them. They ate their tithe, and they went down and had a big party in Jerusalem and that was their tithe. The third year they gave away in its entirety. But just so you're aware of that, is that what you're told about tithing in New Testament churches is one, it's incorrect, and two, it shouldn't be taught anyway. But I'll leave all the rest of that for the sermon. Burke. Okay. Oh. Yes, thank you. They went up to Jerusalem. If I said they went down to Jerusalem, it's because I'm sitting up high on this chair and I was thinking, yeah, okay. You've got this all if we live that long, we will do Amos then, because it's going to be a long time before we get to the book of Amos. It may not be that long, but it's going to be a long time. Uh, anyway, uh, thank you for correcting me on that, because Jerusalem, I don't care where you are in the world, it is always ascending to Jerusalem from the Bible and now. If you go to Jerusalem, I'm going up to Jerusalem. That's just the way it is. Um, of course, Jerusalem is only a type of the true antitype, which is 
the heavenly Mount Zion, okay? So even then, uh, you would ascend further. But when you talk about Jerusalem, it should be up. Whatever, wherever you are in the Bible, I don't care if you're in the north, the south, east, or west, or if you're in Mount Hermon, which is way taller than Jerusalem, you will still say, I am going up to Jerusalem. So thank you for that. Okay, uh, one, one. These are the comments then from uh, Ephesians 1, verse 1. Welcome to the book of Ephesians. It is comprised of 155 verses. And so it will take us one day at a time, just like your vitamins, about one half a year to analyze it if you are reading this commentary one a day. And that's what I would do. I would send out one commentary a day to the people that were reading it. And then finally it gets posted on, uh, you know, a, a compiled commentary on the Superior Word website. And um, uh, by the way, I'm going to say this right now because I may forget to say this to the person. And I would hope that he's watching. I don't know if he is, but. Mike, that takes care of the website, got an incredible comment today about the Superior Word website. A person said to me that it is outstandingly put together. And this is a person whose wife runs the uh, web system for all of the hospitals in the Michigan area. Is that correct? In the Midwest. In all of the Midwest. She's a $4 billion system. And this person said that what uh, Mike has done with the Superior Word website is outstanding. And so uh, that's my hat off to him. If you want to find something there and you can't find it, it's not Mike's fault. It's because we have so much information on the site that it's very hard to actually find some things. Email me and I will get it to you. But I wanted to make sure I got that out because I may forget to email him on that and I don't want to. Okay. Um, he begins by, uh, where was I? Uh, yes. Um, I hope you'll be blessed as each day unfolds with new insights into this beautiful epistle from the mind of God and through the hand of Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. He begins by introducing himself right off the bat. We'll read it now. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. The letter bears his name, and though many have challenged the authenticity of his authorship in this and indeed in all of his letters, there's no valid reason to suggest that he is not the true author. He is the apostle to the Gentiles, and the letter is written to a Gentile-led church. He next identifies his apostleship with the words, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Does anybody know what apostle means? Sent one. Sent one. That's all it means. So if you are an apostle of Jesus Christ, and that's the only time we need to use the term apostle. I will say this. It's, I, I know some people don't like that I say this, but an apostle means sent one. If we were to send somebody to Kenya or to Uganda to see Pastor Silas or um, uh, Isaac Nemugero there, we could say these are apostles of the superior word church. Okay, there's no point in doing that. Okay, that's making a title that's unnecessary. Apostle simply means sent one. If somebody says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ, I wouldn't listen to them. That's my personal thing. I mean, titles don't matter a lot to me anyway, but there's zero need to use the term apostle, especially when you're affixing it to the name Jesus Christ, because that means that Christ has personally commissioned that person. Then there are certain qualifications in the Bible that are necessary for a person to actually be called an apostle. There are secondary apostles like Barnabas, but somebody who is an apostle of Jesus Christ is somebody that has seen the Lord Jesus, they have been instructed by the Lord Jesus, and they have been personally sent by the Lord Jesus. Okay, And so we want to be very careful to not use terms that we do not have a right to you know, simply to elevate herself above somebody else. The best thing to do is to call yourself Charlie Garrett or Jim Dwyer or Hedico and leave it at that. We're all 
What? As if saint. Yeah, it, it, as if saint isn't good enough. I mean, we're all saints in Jesus Christ. It's not a designation uh, given by a pope and approved by a pontificate. A saint is a believer in Christ, and that is it. You are a saint, and therefore you're on the same level as every other saint in the church, and there's no need to have that. Once again, I don't want to take that too far and get people too upset, but that is just something that we need to remember. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ. He is a messenger of the Lord, having been called by him, meaning Jesus, personally to perform this weighty duty, which is which has been so amazingly fruitful for the past 2,000 years. Think of it. He wrote these letters 2,000 years ago, and people are still reading them. They're still studying them. And when we get done with this commentary at the end of today, somebody will send me something about what we talked about today. And I'll say, you know, I never thought of that. 2,000 years of history. We've got people writing commentaries and people building on other people's commentaries. And yet there is still information that will be brought out of the Bible that nobody has ever thought of before, and they say, you know, here, let me present this to you, and sure enough, it's something that is valid. Sometimes people get off on goofy things, and I understand that, but I'm talking about things that are actually valid, and you know, why didn't you mention this? I've been thinking this for a while, and sure enough, it's correct. So there you go. This word will never be exhausted as long as we are here, okay? So um, 2,000 years, he is the one to claim the authority of writing a letter of doctrine to them, And it is with this authority that he thus writes. After this, he notes that his apostleship is by the will of God. That's his words. This is the same phrase as seen in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Colossians, and 2 Timothy. It is what further defines his calling and which affirms his authority. It is also a note of his humility that he was selected and therefore it was not of his own merits something we're going to see in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, right? It is not, it by grace you were saved, you know, uh, not of your own, uh, um, is by works. grace, yeah, yeah, not of works, lest any man should boast. Thank you. I just I got that jumbled up in my head, and I didn't want to misquote it. Okay, so uh, this is a note of his humility. Instead, it was by the sovereign decision of God that he is so designated an apostle. And obviously that's true with all of the apostles, but it's especially evident when it comes to Paul, who was a persecutor of the church. He was out there going to Damascus. He's going to go get more uh, Christians. He's going to take them back to Jerusalem. He's going to have them punished for believing what they believe. And what happens? The Lord intervenes right there on the road to Damascus. And so he's taken to uh, Damascus. And, you know, just as a uh, a note of uh, uh, theology is that he said, I could have been disobedient to the voice and it tells you that free will is a part of our process of salvation. Paul could have been disobedient. I mean, he would have been an idiot to do so. You got a light in heaven and somebody claiming that he's alive when, you know, etc. Obviously, he wouldn't have, but he could have. And so uh, in his letter to the Romans, he gave a more formal declaration of his commission. And in Galatians, the opening statement was considerably more direct and even abrupt, if you remember that. In other letters, the opening varies as well. The opening statement is given in each epistle to set the tone for all of the rest of the letter. And that's the way that Paul does that. You can get a hint. Next time you're reading one of his epistles, and all of them together will take you a couple hours to read. I mean, it doesn't take long to get through Paul's letters. But if you read the initial greeting, the salutation, and and just think on what he said, and then read the rest of the epistle, it will follow 
he is telling in advance, this is how I want to present myself. And then that's how he presents himself. So you can see that in all of his letters. Okay. In other letters, the opening varies as well. The opening statement is given, given in each epistle is to set the tone for the rest of the letter. Finally, he states that the letter is written specifically, here it is, to the saints. That means anybody who is a believer in Christ. In this case, it is who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. So that's who he's writing his letter to. But because God included it in the Word of God, because it is a part of the canon of Scripture, even though he only wrote directly to the Ephesians, he is writing to you and me as well. He's writing to every single person that is a believer in Jesus Christ, and then he says, and faithful in Christ Jesus. So in other words, he wants you to be a person of faith, a person that is willing to be faithful in your walk with the Lord. Okay, they are to be the initial recipients of this beautiful letter of doctrine, meaning the people at Ephesus. And they are to be blessed with having been the first to read the subject matter of what Paul felt it necessary to put into writing for the instruction and edification of those in the church. However, the intent of Paul's letters, oh, I got ahead of myself, didn't I? Is not that they would be read and then secreted away for only the Ephesians to refer to. Rather, the anticipation is that it would be circulated among the churches, having copies made and having sessions where the content could be repeated and analyzed. Okay, I'll stop right there before I go on. We're going to talk about this for just a second. We have the New Testament. And we've got all of these Greek New Testament letters, okay, uh, uh, New Testament copies, okay, manuscripts, I should say. Uh, when I was in college, it was 5,686 known Greek manuscripts. By now, it's probably in the 57, 5,800. But that's how many there were. I remember the number because I was impressed by it, okay? And there are variations in those manuscripts. Does everybody understand that? Okay, we can't say that this one is the inspired one and this is the inspired one. If you go to the Hebrew, there are very, very few copies of the Hebrew. Okay, now you look at this. How many temples were there in Jerusalem? One. There was one temple. There was one central mode of worship. That was the worship of God among Israel, and it was all given. And I talk about this in a couple of the sermons coming up, maybe in this one. But certainly in the weeks ahead, I'm going to mention it again and again, because in Deuteronomy, we are looking right now in the section that would be considered unity of worship. The people were to be uni unified in worship, and there was a reason for that. I know I said it in a previous sermon as well. Can anybody tell me from those sermons why they had a unity of worship? The reason why, I'm getting a lot of blank stares, the reason why is because every single thing in the worship in the temple anticipated Christ. That's right. The sacrifice, the offering, the, the dimensions of the ark, the ark itself, what it's made of. Every single thing, the sanctuary, every length, every width, every height, everything, everything that's recorded in the book of Exodus and then the sacrificial system in Leviticus, every single detail anticipates the coming Christ. And so it was, we are looking for Jesus when we're in the Old Testament looking forward. And so there's one central unity of worship, and the priests are located there. That's where they do their ministering. Of course, they would go up back to their own towns, as we see, um, what's his name, Zechariah, the son of, uh, the father of John the Baptist, went back to his own town after he did his two weeks of uh, the course of ministry for him as a priest. But 
the there was not a great need for many manuscripts because there was a centrality of worship okay anything that was copied for a copy of the hebrew scriptures was meticulous it was absolutely meticulous and they would count that these people would count how many letters there are and they would verify everything and if there were any errors that got discarded so we know the hebrew from one way of being able to um, sense the originality of scriptures. Now, there are obviously other, uh, you've got the Greek translation of it, you've got the Dead Sea Scrolls, and you've got these other uh, sets of manuscripts. And if there was some fudging by somebody like the Masoretes, which they did fudge in, say, Isaiah um, 53 or uh, Psalm 22, we can catch their fudging. They're trying to hide Christ. Well, we can catch that because we've got the Samaritan Pentateuch, and we've got this, and we've got all these different uh, lesser manuscripts, but they're equally important to show us that this, and then we also have, guess what, we have, like the Latin Vulgate was translated by Jerome directly out of the Hebrew. So if he says this, and it agrees with the Septuagint, and it agrees with the Dead Sea Scrolls, but not with the Masoretic text, we know that the Masoretes hid Jesus there. Okay, but for the most part, it is a very, very meticulous care of the Hebrew scriptures. It was not the same with the Greek uh, New Testament. And what I just said there, and this is why I want to focus on this for a few minutes, for somebody that may be new in the Bible and they hear there's all kinds of errors in the Bible, there, as I said, at the time I was in college, 5,686 copies of the New Testament manuscripts. There are more now, certainly, but there were that many. There are variations in them because these people would sit down. They were not professional scribes for the most part. There were professional scribes at the time. But that wasn't how they did this. They'd say, you know, um, uh, Centenius, I want you to make a copy of that and send it over to the Laodiceans. He says, well, why don't we just send that copy? Full! We need our copy to keep our doctrine, right? So I'm making a joke there. But anyway, they're going to make copies, and these people were not trained scribes. And so they would just copy it down, and they'd send it on as carefully as they could. But here is where the issue lies. People say, well, there's all these differences between these Greek manuscripts, and because of that, we can't know what the New Testament is. It's exactly the opposite in truth. Exactly. The Hebrew has a very limited number, very carefully recorded. The New Testament has such a high volume of Greek manuscripts and lectionaries, 14,000 lectionaries. Those are things, written commentaries on uh, the various verses of the Bible. We can know within 11 verses of the New Testament, the entire New Testament, 11 verses, they have early church father lectionary commentaries written on that so they could reconstruct the entire Bible with those. 14,000 copies of those within the first couple hundred years. We have all of these Greek manuscripts. And if there is, I'm going to do this just very quickly. All right, I'm going to write this down. I'm not going to write it all out, but I've done this before. I just want you to remember this. And I say that's spelled out, okay? I owe you $1 million, okay? I'm just being brief here, okay? Uh, wait, 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 okay? Now this one says, okay? And then this one says, all right? Okay, somebody could have put a two in there and then I'd be broke. Okay, um, so you see, okay, you've got these and this is enough to do it. I could go through the whole thing. But one, any dolt will read that and say, I know what it says. 
there's a typo there and it says, I owe you a million dollars. Okay. But another guy comes along and he translates it and he makes an uh, a, a error here. And so now you see it says, I blank you. And this is what critical scholars do. They go and they get these massive volumes of these Greek testaments and they, they check every single thing. There are thousands of ways a person can make an error. His eye could jump up here and he could skip a, a word here or he could add another word because and by looking at this volume of Greek manuscripts, they can know within, with an absolute certainty of what the New Testament is saying. They can know with absolute certainty. Now, there will be, over the major text, there will be some differences, and they can argue over those. Not one of them. In all of the Greek New Testament, not one of them is doctrinally damaging. Not one. There are some that may say, well, oh, you know, the King James people will say, well, you know, the, the uh, NU text leaves out the blood in this verse. Well, guess what? It adds it in in Colossians that isn't in the... So the same thought is given in the Colossians that they claim isn't mentioned in their copy of the King James Version. It, the, the blood is always there saying this is of critical importance, and there is not one point of critical doctrine which is missing. But there you go with that. Uh, just so you know that with the New Testament, if you ever have doubts about the authenticity of the New Testament, get a book about scholarly critique of the New Testament by somebody that has done the work. I'm not talking about people that will dismiss the New Testament and they'll find reasons to do it. I'm talking about somebody that's actually done the work and checked every possible thing that you can read and you will see that there is not any error for our theology. Zero. And as I said, you can go back to the lectionaries. You can go back to other sources for the New Testament, and you can say with 100% absolute certainty, we have what we need, and it is inspired by God. No doubt about it. Okay, I'm not going to go into that real long. If we were to do a study on how to find these errors, and I was to go through there, every time I did it, you'd say, oh, I never thought of that. Oh, I never thought. It is such a wonderful study to go through, but I'm not going to do that. That's not my thing in life. Get a book by somebody that has done it, or simply go to YouTube, and there will be people that will defend the New Testament, and it is well worth your time. It is well worth your time, and it will help you to be able to defend people that come to you and say, oh, the Bible's full of errors. And, and no, I'm sorry, it's not. I think it would help people to, I think it would help people to just consider logically if you've ever tried to copy something that's written in another language. It's very complicated. It's, well, you don't know how to properly form the letter, right. and it's very easy to therefore transcribe that letter and make it into something else. That's true, and but and I'm talking just Greek and Greek, okay? Well, it, yes, but when but you, I'm thinking if these weren't professional scribes that were always used, right? It would be very easy to make a spelling all error. the time, and that's why I did that all exactly. the time. You will see this all the time, so, but actually, and this is this is going to sound stupid, but it's not. The more times you find an error like this, the more time, the more validating it is of what the original text actually actually says. And so, don't let these things uh, bother you. Watch something on YouTube, read a book, and you will you will know. You don't have to have those doubts in your mind. You will know if you t if you go to somebody that is a, a valuable resource, willing to defend the Bible, and he can do it properly. You will come out absolutely assured that what you have is acceptable. 100%. So that's that's my comment on that. I just wanted to make sure that you felt that way. And if you have any questions, maybe I can find a good book that I have read myself. I don't remember any of them, you know, the, the 
author and the title and all that, but I could probably find something of value for you. Um, or just go out and search on Google and you'll save me the time of doing it. Okay, so um, uh, they're the initial recipients. Okay, they're supposed to put in writing. Okay, and uh, having copies made and uh, having sessions where the content could be repeated and analyzed. Okay, this is seen in the words, and faithful in Christ Jesus. The Ephesians are the main addressee, but all who are faithful in Christ are also included in the words from Paul's hand. This is seen in the truth that we have, in fact, a copy of the letter before us now. It became well known enough to be considered for inclusion into the pages of the Bible, and its contents made it rightly selected for that same purpose. Each step of the process was guided by the Holy Spirit to ensure that we have the sure and perfect word of God to refer to. Life application. As Paul wrote, he probably didn't think that what we would be reading would be his words written 2,000 years before, and now we are studying them 2,000 years later. But the personal nature of the note includes us in the epistles nonetheless. It is a letter directed to each person as an individual who would pick it up and read it. Consider this as you read it or truly any portion of Scripture. Okay, this is written to you as much as it is to anybody else. When Moses spoke out to Israel, he was speaking out to us. Those words belong to us just as much as anybody else. Now, the content may not. In other words, it, you know, we're not under the law. Let's make that absolutely clear right now. If you don't understand that, go back and watch the Galatians study that we just finished last week. We're not under the law. But the fact that we're not under the law does not mean that what Moses said does not give us instruction. All scripture is inspired by God, and it is useful for our reproof and our instruction and our uh, training in righteousness and other such things. Okay, all of it. But it doesn't all apply to everybody in the same way at the same time. Best example is that we're not all going to go out and start building an ark today. Okay, the fact that somebody was told to do that does not mean that we are told to do that. Okay, when Abraham met Melchizedek, okay, he gave him 10% of the spoils, okay? And people say, well, that's the first use of tithing in the New Testament, and therefore that is the, what? Or the Old Testament, thank you. That's the first known use of tithing in the Old Testament, and uh, that falls under the doctrine of um, first mention. Yeah, first mention. Okay, and so uh, first I'll tell you this. I'm getting ahead into the sermon again, but I just want to make you understand that there is no doctrine of first mention. Because if there was, we'd be doing a lot of things that we do not want to have to do in this. Okay. Uh, Yeah, yeah, you wouldn't want to be Naples. Okay. Um, Well, anyway. um, Yeah, the, uh, the doctrine of first mention is not a valid doctrine. Okay, the reason why the doctrine of first mention was invented was so that people would tithe. That's exactly why, because there is no other time that something is mentioned first, like, you know, uh, um, uh, what was his name? Uh, Judas, his son Ur died, and so the next brother came in and, you know, had to perform his duties, and he wouldn't, and he died, and then the next brother, and this is a doctrine of first mention. If that holds true, then everybody is supposed to marry their brother's wife if their brother dies and have children. For You see, it's, it, it's not logical and it's not scriptural. Okay, so having said that, I'll get back into this, but I just wanted to throw that out as well. Okay, um, as Paul, oh, I read that, so we're into one, two now. Oh, yes. You missed a big word in. Burke, just say what you got to say. And, and. I did. I mentioned that. Oh, okay. Yes, he does. 
in Christ. In Christ. Okay, what Burke, Burke wants me to talk about the word in. No, 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 I just said it, it's, it's, it's a big word. It is a big word, and because you brought it up, I'm going to mention it. Okay, in Christ Jesus means that you are in Christ Jesus. Does everybody understand that? Okay, there we go. Uh, that was, okay. That was first no, yes. Uh, no, okay. Uh, what that means is that we are covered by Christ. When God sees us, he does not see us. He sees the covering of Christ. We are included in the body of Christ. And when you are in that position, you cannot come out of that position. I, I, I'm sorry for people that believe that you can lose your salvation. I, I feel very bad for them because it diminishes the work of Jesus Christ. It diminishes the price that he paid, and it also completely ignores a, a giant body of what Scripture teaches, a giant body of it. Um, the best way to understand this so that people will finally get it, and they still won't because if it's in their head, they're not going to get it, but it, you take Israel as the template. Israel is the template for individuals in the church. Okay, there's no doubt about that. If you don't understand what I'm talking about, go back and start in Genesis 1-1 and follow through with our sermons and you'll catch up to us very quickly. We're only in Deuteronomy um, 14 this week. But Israel is a body of people. But the body of people, the unified body of people covenanted with the Lord. Okay, the Lord covenanted with them. So the question is, does Israel's unfaithfulness negate God's faithfulness? No. no, not in any way, shape, or form. They have been unfaithful, and God has remained faithful to the corporate body. Okay, As a corporate body, they are a template for the individual believer in Christ. We covenant with God when we have faith in what Jesus Christ did. When you believe, Paul says, that, and we'll go through it, I'm not going to get ahead of myself here, but when you believe you are saved, okay, you have covenanted with him, but he first covenanted with us. When we meet the stipulations of that agreement, that covenant, he will never reject what we have done, even if we're unfaithful as Israel was. And the problem with this is, is that people believe that the church has replaced Israel, that Israel is out. And that type of thinking has brought so much harm to the church. Because when you believe that God is unfaithful to his covenant, which he promised, and he said, I will never reject these people, ever. And the fact that they are back in the land, still in a state of disobedience, and people can't see what God is doing, and they still deny that the Jewish people are God's people, and that he is bringing them back to himself, it is almost incomprehensible that they can even claim to be a believer in Jesus Christ. I'm not saying they're not saved. I would never say that. I'm not going to make any accusation in that, but it's hard to believe that they can say, I am a believer in Christ, but he could forsake me just as he has forsaken Israel. It doesn't make any sense to me. I cannot understand that logic. There's nothing I can do to help people to get above that if they won't get above it. But that is what we need to understand, the faithfulness. So what Burke said is important. It is a giant word. And he uses that term here and in all of his epistles, in Christ Jesus, meaning that we are in him. We are a part of him. We could no more be cut off from Christ Jesus for whatever we did than Christ would cut off his own foot. It's not going to happen. 
We are in Christ, and that is our position, and we're going to see this when we get to chapter 2, starting in verse 4. We are going to see this so apparently that you're not going to be able to deny it unless you just demand on denying the Word of God, okay? So, we're going to go on from there. Good job, Burke. Okay. One more thing. Oh, one more thing. Go ahead. You quoted uh, Timothy, all scripture is given. Yes. And I looked in the internet and it says, all God's breathed. Yes. It's all, it, that, that's better to me than given. I could give this book to Jody. I was paraphrasing. I wasn't quoting it. If I, oh, yeah, okay. I, if I wanted to, I would have picked it up. I was, I was paraphrasing. I was okay. just, I was just, but you're right. It is God breathed. Okay. Yeah. And uh, that's repeated by Peter where holy men of God are carried along, moved along by the Holy Spirit, just as a ship is being blown with a sail. Okay, so you're you're correct. If I am going to read it, I should read it properly, but I was just paraphrasing off the top of my head. So I don't have verses memorized like you do, but I need to get the substance out so people know what I'm talking about. But you are right. It is God-breathed. Uh, uh, what is it? Uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the term, and I can't right now, but anyway. No, I'm talking about the Greek, the Greek phrase. What? Uh, well, no, what I'm thinking of is the Greek term and the literal translation, but the literal translation would be God breathed. Okay. In the original, it kind of goes back to what you were saying. God, the original one is inspired. Yes. And, and, and then we have translation. That's right. I don't know if they can hear you, so I'm going to say okay. that again. He said the original is inspired. God's word is inspired, and then we have translations. And I'm sorry for people that think that they have the only valid translation. It's not just King James. I pick on them because it's so obvious. I, I, I keep a daily uh, record of the errors in the King James Version. Anytime I analyze uh, Old Testament or New Testament verse, and I'm up to thousands. Of, if you want to read them, just go to the Superior Word website and look for errors in the King James Version, and there's thousands of them. Okay, It is not a good translation. It is a marginal translation at best. But they did their best with what they could, and you know uh, we have a much better scholarship of the Hebrew nowadays. And plus, we have things that they didn't have back then. They didn't have proper metallurgy. There are things that they say, like, thou diggest brass out of the hills in Deuteronomy 8, 9. I'm sorry, you can't diggest brass out of the hills because brass is a man-made alloy, okay? And so we have better metallurgy. We've got better uh, gemology, certain gems, they say, that were inscribed by the high priest. And they can't be inscribed by the high priest because they were too hard until we have lasers, okay? But then, of course, uh, you'll get the King James. Only people will say, oh, well, God divinely inscribed them. And nonsense. They just make stuff up to try to hide these things. But um, uh, anyway, I won't get into that anymore. But if you want to see some of the errors, just go read. There's thousands of them, okay? Oh, yeah. Their authors say that, you know, you need to read lots of translations and that we don't know the meaning of many of words, etc. So even the the translators, not the authors, the translators of the King James Version admit right. that their theirs is not the inspired version. But that's only one of many. Don't get me wrong. There are people that say that the Septuagint translation of the Bible is the only one that anybody should use. There are people that say that the Aramaic Bible is God's breathed, inspired Bible. If you don't read the Aramaic version, you're not getting the truth. And the Jehovah's Witnesses, of course, believe that the New World Translation is fully inspired and blah, blah. It's nonsense. Getting into that type of stuff begins with B and ends with ondage. Anybody? Okay. Yeah, there you go. That's all that is. It's nothing more than that. Okay, verse 1, 2. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord. Okay, very similar, but he says grace to you and peace. From God our Father. Okay, so there you go. A little, little difference. It, they changed it up. 
okay? Uh, verse 1, 2. In his initial words of verse 1, Paul identified himself, his position as an apostle, his calling by the will of God, and to whom he was addressing. Now he gives the standard greeting, which is found in almost all of his epistles. Grace to you and peace to you. Grace, and I, I know I put this, I think I probably just cut and paste my comments from this for each uh, book. I don't know if I did that or not, but I probably did because it's, it, you can only say it so many times, but here you go. Grace is unmerited favor. Yes, which cannot be earned. Okay, if you do something for your salvation, it ain't grace. If you have to do something to continue in your salvation, it ain't grace. In fact, if you have to do something after being saved in order to continue to be saved, it was never by grace through faith. And we can take Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and we can toss them right out on their ear, okay? Anywhere along the stream of your salvation, if you have to do something in order to continue to be saved, then it is not of grace and it is not by faith. It is by works. Take the Bible and just tear it up and throw it away and go out and work your way to heaven because that's all you got left, okay? You will never make it. That ladder is way too high for you, okay? So grace is unmerited favor, which cannot be earned. It's the common greeting among the Greek people, charis in Greek. Peace, however, is the common greeting among the Hebrew people. In their language, the word is shalom, shalom. This is, a more, this is more than a gr greeting for calm or for quiet, as we would say, peace to you, peace baby. That's not what we're referring to, okay? But it is a state of wholeness and completion in all ways. When somebody says to you shalom, they're not just saying peace to you and have a, a quiet morning. It's saying, I am wishing you completeness, wholeness, you know, in body and mind and spirit. Okay, that's the idea that is transmitted. So this is more than a greeting for calm or quiet. It is a state of wholeness and completion in all ways. Paul unites the two terms just as the church is being united between Jew and Gentile during his time. This grace precedes the peace, because only after receiving the grace of God can a person experience the peace of God. That's why he does everything is logical and orderly in the Bible. Paul extends this wonderful blessing to them from, as he says, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a greeting from the eternal God, both the unseen Father and his Son, who reveals the Father to us. Rather than being an argument against the divinity of Christ, which people use all the time when they say this, they say, see, that proves he's not God. Okay, it is an argument for the divinity of Christ. He is tying the two in as one, Jesus being a member of the Godhead. He is not making some type of great division, but a harmonious blending of the two. Okay, read it again. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is one entity. Uh, when Jesus uh, said to the disciples in Matthew 28, 18, go and baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them, etc. When he said that, he used the word onoma, name, singular. And then he said three names. He's making a point. They are one. Okay, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is one God that is revealed in the Trinity. Okay, three persons for a lack of a better term, in one Godhead, okay? That was Augustine. He decided on the term persons years ago, and he said, oh, it's the best term we can think up, but it doesn't accurately 
because when we think of a person, we think of one sitting here and here and here. Can't do that. It is three persons in one essence. And it's hard for us to get our minds around, but it is what the Bible teaches. Okay. So um, throughout Paul's letters, as with the entire Bible, the deity of Jesus Christ is a concept and a precept which simply cannot be missed. It is the very heart of what God has done for the reconciliation of the people of the world. And life application, outside of God's creation, which reveals him in a general way, we cannot comprehend him except through his special revelation. One way we receive special revelation is through the mouth of his prophets. But these prophets all testified the same thing, Jesus Christ. That's found in John 5.39. What does he say? You go search the scriptures. They are what testify of me. Okay? I'm sure that's the same verse. I just wrote John 5.39. The most uh, magnificent special revelation of God that we have received is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So we've got special revelation in the prophets. We've got special revelation in God's miracles, which we don't see. They're just recorded in the Bible. But that's a special revelation of God. Okay, in some miracles, you could say it's out of the natural order, but, okay, I'll give you an example. How did God part the Red Sea? With a wind, specifically an east wind. Okay, he did it. Okay, is there anything remarkable about that? Okay, well, wait, wait. Every single year, and when I say this, people start getting something in their head. Every single year, well, I live down on Sarasota Bay, right? And it's deep. I could swim all the way across. I've never done it. Somebody asked me a week or two ago if I, I never thought of it. I guess I could go do it. Yeah, why? Uh, anyway, so I live out there, okay? And there are a couple shallow spots where they have sandbars, okay? And the sandbars were in the 20s. They went and they dredged out and they had to take the spillings and put them somewhere. So, and they've got these beautiful sandbars. Um, but other than that, I would suppose it's probably head deep at, at points um, maybe a little higher than that going across the bay, except where the intercoastal waterway is, which will be much deeper, okay? So, what is going to happen when a cold front, a big cold front, not just a, like what we just had, but a big cold front, what is going to happen? The wind's going to blow from the north, yes, and that bay, in one night, I've seen this a hundred times in my life, she sees it all the time, we will go out there the next morning, and the dock is completely empty, and I could walk all the way across Sarasota Bay and probably not get above my knees, except where they dredged it out, okay? Okay, and if the, wi the wind was stronger, it would be even quicker, and it would be even... You've seen that. Mom saw it. We grew up on this. I mean, we grew up right just north of where I live now, okay? Absolutely not miraculous that that happens. What is miraculous is that there are 655,000, uh, yeah, 655,000 men, 652,000 men. Anyway, um, 552, 600. Anyway, it was a big number, 650,552. I, I, I forgot the number. It's, it's somewhere right in that area. There are men, and then you've got all of the Levites that weren't counted, and you've got all the women and the children and the goats and the wagons, and you've got this giant deep thing out there, and you've got the Egyptians coming at you, and you can't go to the north or to the south. You can only go forward. And God says, I am going to do this right now. That is a miracle. The fact that he did it and he used the natural order, so what? He can do whatever he wants, but he said, I'm going to do this and you will see the salvation of the Lord. And the people were saved. And then what happened as soon as Israel got through? 
the waters collapsed on the Egyptians. That is a miracle. That's not something that you can plan and say, oh, we're going to do this at this time on this day when the wind is going to come. It doesn't work that way. So just because something is natural and somebody argues against it from that standpoint saying, oh, see, Charlie Garrett has it happened in the back of his house. It, listen, you're not going to be able to get all of what God did into one box and say, here, we figured it out. It, it'll never happen. Okay. That's right. Yeah, or even more, even more right. than a, a, a paper airplane to a Learjet. But the fact is that God uses nature to do the miraculous, okay? When he says, I'm going to destroy this army and the entire army is destroyed and there happened to be an earthquake, guess what? He knew that that earthquake was coming and he used that to destroy that army. You'll see that. You'll see times where rocks fall out and destroy all of the advancing earth armies. Yeah, the it's earth swallowing. opening up and swallowing. That may have been as natural as could be. I don't know. But it happened exactly when Moses said, watch this. This is about to happen. And it happened. Okay, so when somebody tries to diminish the Bible in that way, don't let them get away with that. Don't let people get away with that. Say, yeah, I know that that happens. I know that rocks fall out of the sky. I know that there are earthquakes that kill lots of people. I want you to explain to me this, 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 and this. Listen, when the army of the Assyrians, 185,000 of them, were killed in a night, okay, uh, and it says there, the next day they looked out and there were all the dead bodies, okay, okay. Um, that was probably a natural event. It was probably rats or something got in there and infected their food supply and they all died. So what? The day before, the Lord said it was going to happen and nobody had any idea that it was going to happen. So just because he uses something that can be explained in some way, that, that's why I don't like this guy, the naked archaeologist. He used to do these videos and I think he probably still does and he makes stuff up as he goes. He adds details into the story that do not belong there. What we need to do is look at the story and say, look at what God has done. And this is a recorded part of history. It's, you know, you have to argue against it, not for it. Okay. I'm talking about them. All right. So be careful how you look at those things. But special revelation is what I'm saying. A miracle is special revelation, even if it is by natural means. It's impressive. Parting the Red Sea is. How about Israel coming back? Like Absolutely. Like, oh, Absolutely. And not only that, not only is Israel gathered back into the land, okay, not only are they there, and it is true that's the same group of people, even though Ahmed said it isn't, okay, that's the same group of people that God said he was going to bring back into the land, okay, and they are there. Not only is that the case, but what is more important about that? It was predicted, it was prophesied. It was prophesied in advance to the day that it would happen. Right. And on May uh, 14th of 1948, it actually happened. And you can go back and you can do the calculation and you can come to the day that it was supposed to happen. And then Jerusalem was captured how much later by the Jewish nation? 19 years. Right. Well, guess what? 19 years after the initial exiles were exiled, right? Jerusalem was captured and destroyed, okay? So all you do is you add the 19 years on and you come to the exact same calculation that Israel was reestablished May 4th of 1948, and Jerusalem was recaptured on June 7th of 1967. There is no mistake in this, and that was prophesied in advance. Go read Ezekiel chapter 4. You'll need Daniel 9 to work it out as well. And 
some dating from the book of Nehemiah, and you will come up with it. Also, you need to know the calculation from uh, Leviticus 26, okay, where he says, I will punish them seven times over for their sins. You have to take all that into account. When you do, you will come up with an understanding that God did what he said he was going to do. Yes? The angel of the Lord struck Yes, I understand that. But what I'm saying is he may have used natural means to do it. I understand that. I understand that just like the angel of the Lord parted the Red Sea. But he said, I did it with an east wind. Okay, so I'm not trying to say the the Lord didn't do it. I'm saying that he used natural means in order to effect a supernatural miracle. They didn't get mud in their toes. They were dry, high and dry. Absolutely right. But yes, you're right. That's being precise. The, it, the Bible says that the angel of the Lord came and did this. How did he do it? And I'm just saying that he could have used natural tool. means and it doesn't make any difference. Right. What? It's a tool. Yeah, absolutely. The weather, I mean, the, absolutely. The wind. Okay, we got to go on. But for us, uh, even this, oh, here we go. The most magnificent special revelation of God that we have received is the incarnation of Jesus. But for us, even this isn't sight. We don't see Jesus, okay? Unless you're having visions of Jesus, but okay, this isn't sight. It is found in the testimony of those who have recorded what they knew in the New Testament. That is where we get our vision of Jesus. That is where when we close our eyes and say, I see Jesus, it's because we have read the word and we are now making, just as we do with anything. You know, I read a story about, you know, whatever. Uh, Claire O'Sullivan writes a book and she uh, says, uh, makes a, a novel out of it. And I read it. I'm going to make mental images from that. Or when I listen to a radio show, you remember the old gangbuster radio show, okay, or some of these other things we used to listen to on the radio. And it's called theater of the mind for a reason. You're not sitting there taking in a movie show. Your your mind is making things up as you're you're you know you don't know what the street looks like, but your mind is making up what a street looks like. Okay, that's what you're doing when you read the Bible, and that's why when I see people have depictions of Jesus in Chinese, I have no problem with it at all because that's what they think. Their eyes are thinking of what the Messiah looks like to them. Okay, if somebody makes a, a Jesus. To, that to them looks like an Aztec Indian, it's because he's an Aztec Indian, and that's what he's thinking, all right? Jesus is the Messiah of the World. Jews. He is the Christ of the nations, and the nations see Jesus in their mind when they read the Bible or when they hear the story, and they don't see a white guy sitting there, okay? Or they don't see a guy from, you know, the Middle East. That's not what they see. Okay, so I don't have a problem with that. Some people have big problems with that. I'm not one of them. Okay, I'm going to read that again so you know why I said what I just said. But for us, even this isn't sight. The incarnation of Jesus. There's no sight for us in that. Okay, it is found in the testimony of those who have recorded what they knew into the New Testament. That's where our sight of the New Testament or of Jesus is. So, in order to understand God, one must know Jesus Christ. And in order to know Jesus Christ, you cannot unless you know the Bible. That's right. You, you, it is as logical as it can be, and I can say that to people until I'm blue in the face, and yet they will still come to me and say, how do I get better doctrine? Or how do I do this? Or how do I do that? It's not going to happen by putting it under your pillow. It's not going to happen in any other way than picking up this word and reading it and reading it and reading it and reading it. And the more you read it, the more it makes sense. And the more you can be kept from being deceived. But if you're not reading it in the morning, if you're not reading it at night, and if you're not thinking on it, you are harming yourself. Only you are being harmed by that. 
You cannot know God without knowing Jesus Christ. You cannot know Jesus Christ without knowing the word which tells of Jesus Christ. Anything else is made up in your head, and it is insufficient for your life, for your doctrine, and for your practice. Okay, a, yes, go ahead. Quick thing. The average width of the Red Sea yes. is like going from Key West to Cuba. It's a long way. It's Absolutely. Like it's a long way. Now, they believe where it was, and I'll show you this right now. Okay, uh, I am not a proponent of the Red Sea. Of, there, there's two tongues. And one of them goes down to Saudi Arabia, and they say that they left Egypt, went all the way across the Sinai Peninsula, and then crossed over in Saudi Arabia. That is not biblical, okay? That is a recent invention. Ron Wyatt and some other people came up with that. It is not correct. I can tell you that right now. It's not. If you disagree, that's fine. Go ahead and be wrong. It is incorrect. The People started to get that in their head because it says in Galatians, we talked about this when we were in Galatians, is that... Uh, Paul went where for his revelation of Christ? Arabia. Arabia. Well, guess what? This entire area, this is one tongue of the Red Sea. This is another tongue of the Red Sea. And then you've got Saudi, I'm sorry, the Sinai Peninsula here and Saudi Arabia over here, right? And this is Israel right here. This entire area is known as Arab Petraea, all of it, okay? Especially this area down here. I should highlight that there, Arab Petraea. It's all Arabia. But because we don't call it Arabia anymore, people in modern day that don't know their history say, oh, well, then he must have gone to Saudi Arabia. And they go making stuff up and they take pictures of mountains and say, see, this is the mountain. It's not. Okay. That is not where it happened. Okay. Uh, now I don't remember why I turned back over here. I was going to, oh, Red Sea. This is the Red Sea. This is Egypt over here. This is the uh, where the Red Sea ends right now. And it goes down here and then out into the ocean, okay? And then the other tongue is over here. And this is, uh, what do you call it, Sinai here, okay? They actually believe, and this would make a lot more sense, okay? And I talk about this in the Exodus sermons, but they actually believe that where the Red Sea was before is no longer there. Just like, what is it? Is it uh, Ephesus or is it uh, Philippi? I think it's Ephesus that is now miles away, miles away from the ocean, but it was an ocean port at the time. The actual closing of the Red Sea was here, and they believe it was much narrower. And there's a reason for that, is that there would have been a land bridge, just like we have with the uh, sandbar in the bay. And so it would separate there first, because there's this yeah. this bar of land there, which now is all covered up, and so it would have been dry as a bone in one night. Well, there's another miracle right there all of a sudden, which I didn't even think about, which we could have included in there. It just happened to be that they came to the one spot that would actually divide the waters into two walls and all of the Red Sea. And they happened to be there. And the Lord happened to say, I'm going to do it tonight. And, you know, I've, I got you out at the Passover. I'm going to get you over on this particular day. Everything had to work perfectly. Outside He's outside so of time. Would that be yeah, well, it's not a problem for me. I'll tell you that. Anyway, uh, there you go with that. So you need to know today's life application. Know your Bible. Okay, verse 1 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Okay, and they did exactly the same thing with this one. They say, with every special spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So they just turned the two around. Okay, and the word places. In Greek, it, it says the heavenlies. It doesn't say heavenly realms or heavenly places. It says the heavenlies. And so they insert that for our understanding, okay? But there you go with this. Okay, one, three. This verse, although divided with periods in the English, 
is actually one continuous thought, which ends at the close of verse 12. He said 14, but okay, so uh, maybe Greek scholars disagree on that a little bit, but it goes all the way. It goes a long way. It's one continuous verse, okay? He says 14. The commentary I read is 12, and I don't know my Greek well enough to argue with either one of them. I could call Will Groban, and he could tell us. So, what's that? Black letters on 15 separates it. Oh, okay. Uh, and that may be, or it may be that it's to, uh, a sentence ending from 12 yeah. to 15. Yeah, anyway, it goes down quite a way. But um, uh, Will Groban, I haven't heard from him. He did go to Kansas. He got his pastorate over there, just so you know. He is pastoring a church in Kansas. He's moved in, and I don't know the status. I haven't heard from him in a week or two, but remind me to pray for him when we get done because he's about to get back into the lion's den after a couple years away. And it's, it's if never mind we'll just pray for him okay uh although it, it ends at the close of verse 12 in the thought he begins with the words blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ the word be is inserted in the english for clarity and the word blessed is different than the word which is used in the beatitudes which is also translated as blessed it is the word elogitos and it literally indicates worthy of praise. It is where the term eulogize or eulogy comes from. It is only used of God the Father and Christ, meaning God the Son. Thus it shows that the Godhead is worthy of all praise. The term the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in no way negates the deity of Christ. We talked about that in the previous verse. Again, we'll talk about it here. In fact, it highlights it. As there is one God and he is the Father of Christ, then it shows that there is more to the character of God than just being a monad. Now, last weekend we were talking to Ahmed, maybe it was two weekends ago, and last weekend, and he's a Muslim and he decided to come out and uh, disagree with us about our Christianity. And we didn't argue with him, we just gave him some points. But one of the points that I wanted to give him, but he would not have understood it. It would have taken an entire hour to talk, and he will not give you two seconds to speak. He's very overbearing. But is that God cannot be a monad. Cannot. A monad means a single unity, okay? There's no plurality within the Godhead. That is impossible, okay? If that was the case, then God would have no reason at all to go beyond himself. Zero. If you don't understand that, go watch the Genesis 1-1 sermon. I talk about it a little bit, but he would have no reason to go beyond himself. We're in the image of God. We, that, well, that's we, right. But we, that's an argument from the Bible. Well, sure. That's an argument We're from the Bible. That's right. Social. Well, that there is another reason which I talk about. That's another reason why God cannot be a monad. We cannot possess a quality that God does not possess. If we possess a social nature, if we do, God cannot create a being that has a nature he does not possess. He possesses a social nature. Therefore, he must be a plurality within a singularity. He must be. It is impossible for God to love if there is nothing beyond himself when as a monad. He would not create anything beyond himself because he'd be fully self-loving without anything else to direct his love to. Everything about us shows us that God must be more than a monad. Okay, I wanted to make that point. Go back and watch the Genesis 1-1 sermon, and I can send you the information on that 
if you want it. But it's an important thing to understand that if you have somebody that won't stand there and argue with you all day and you want to tell them why Islam is wrong, that's one reason right there because they say there is no God and he has taken to himself no partner, meaning there is no son relationship in the monad God. Okay, and then you can just tell them, well, you're a social being. God would be creating something that he does not have and therefore it is not the God of the universe and end your conversation with him. If Monad would not change his mind, but he does all the way through the Quran, all the way through it. Okay, so I'll read that again. He is the father of Christ, and it shows that there is more to the character of God than just being a Monad. We've got to finish a couple minutes early, too, so i got to get going. Um, uh, the reason why is, um, okay, we'll go on. Rather, it shows that the two are one, but are yet different persons within the Godhead. The Spirit, although not mentioned here, is the third member of the Godhead. His, but Paul does implicitly include him elsewhere in his greetings as the third member. His next words are, who has blessed us? The us is not referring to the world at large, because the world at large has not been blessed with the spiritual, ble spiritual blessings which he will next refer to. Hence, I was very upset with Max Lucado during my prophecy update last week, because he was saying things that are untrue and trying to justify something that is unjustifiable. Nor is it specifically speaking of the Gentiles, because Paul uses the term us, and he's a Jew. Therefore, us must be referring to the saints, mentioned in verse 1, of whom Paul includes himself. All saints, meaning believers in Christ, are included in the words of this epistle, which Paul now sets forth for us, all of us, any believer in Christ who is a true saint. It is the saints of the ages who have been blessed, as Paul says, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. These spiritual blessings include peace with God, pardon from sin, redemption through the blood of Christ, adoption as sons of God, the sealing of the Holy Spirit, and so on. These are those spiritual blessings that are unique to the follower of Jesus Christ. I mentioned there adoption as sons of God. That ought to give you a clue as to what we're going to talk about concerning the Nephilim on uh, uh, Sunday. Be here or be square. The word places is not in the Greek. Oh, wait a minute. Am I still? Yes, I'm st that's correct. The word places, heavenly places, is not in the Greek, but is inserted for clarity by the translators. Rather, it says more literally, in the heavenlies. It can mean heavenly places, heavenly things, and so on. The intent is that all that relates to heavenly matters, things related to or pertaining to heaven, is what the believer is endowed with. Everybody got that? When they say heavenly places, and they insert the word places, or I think yours said realm, okay, then it's kind of misleading because it's not just the place of heaven, it's everything associated with heaven. Okay, I got to go because um, we got to turn it off early because I started early. And if we go over an hour and a half, it causes problems for the web guy when he does the podcast. So I need to not go over uh, an hour and a half. Okay, Paul will refer to these heavenlies five times in this epistle in 1 3, 1 20, 2 6, which is an important one there. I mean, they're all important, don't get me wrong. But what I was talking about earlier when I made a reference to our position in Christ, okay, from 2 4, 2 5, 2 6, 2 7. Those are really important verses to understand that you cannot lose your salvation. Uh, 3.10 and 6.12. I'll read that again. 1.3, and 6.12. Nowhere else will he speak of such things using this particular form of the word. Only in this, and he says it five times. Thus, 
the letter of Ephesians is especially directed toward an understanding of the spiritual matters which lead to our heavenly inheritance because of our position in Christ. I get so excited with that. Man, my hair's standing up. Oh, it's just wonderful. All the promises of God in Christ. And as Burke said earlier, we are in Christ, okay? We are in Christ. God sees us through the lens of his son, and he sees perfection. Not because we're perfect, but because his son is perfect, okay? From the moment that we call on him, we are termed, here it is, I was going to get it in this verse, and you, you pestered me on in the first verse, in him. And the benefits to be derived from this exalted position will never be taken away. Paul will confirm this as he winds his way through the epistle. It is remarkable that the very tone of the entire epistle, that of spiritual blessings, is that which is highlighted at this introductory moment. His words will follow naturally and specifically from the words of this verse right now. Let me make a note right here. And let's see here. I got a life application for you. And yeah, we'll be done just a couple minutes earlier, but that's okay. It's better to do that than get Mike in a pickle. And I do not want to do that to him. He does. I'll say this now in case he's listening and I'll butter him up a little bit. He does so much for the church. I don't even know his real name. He says, call me Mike. That's all I know. I've offered to help him if you ever need anything. He, he, he just is marvelous. He started the website on his own. He's never asked for any help, anything. He's just a wonderful guy. He's so appreciated. And uh, anyway, um, there you go. Life application. If you want to have a fuller understanding of our position in Christ and the spiritual blessings which accompany that glorious state, stay tuned as we follow Paul's thoughts through to the end of this marvelous letter. Really wonderful. I'm telling you, I got to leave that. That's Burke's. I don't want to steal his preface. Um, thank you for bringing that, though. That was that was good that you brought that because I, I should have, what I should have done is read my commentary and said, oh, I didn't do a preface and type one for the study, but I didn't even think of it until Burke handed this to me and said, here, you need this. I'm like, oh. So, um, yes. Um, yeah, I was talking about Mike and the reason why is because I need to keep this short for him. He's done so much for the church. I need to do that for him. So that's why we're at an hour and a half and uh, we have to leave it at that. So, oh, we'll say a prayer and include Will Groban. Heavenly Father, we're certainly thankful for the entrance into a new book of your word. What a precious epistle this is. And uh, it's exciting. It's completely different than the almost uh, difficult reading of Galatians. Though it was a, an exciting book, it was with hard words to a group of people. And Ephesians is just spiritually uplifting. It tells us so much wonder and delight. And we look forward to hearing uh, the words of Paul come alive. And I would pray that uh, the words that I give during this commentary of these next few months would be appropriate. And if something is not appropriate, that you would get that back to me so that I can correct it and have people not be put down a wrong path. And Lord, uh, we certainly pray for Will Groban, who is getting back into the pastorate after several years away from it. It's something that he's wanted to do, and we know that there are going to be great challenges for him. He's got to deal with human beings, and he's got to be uh, polite and respectful to them, even when they are not to him, and that's certainly going to be the case. Uh, he's got a lot of people to tend to, and I would pray that you would give him the wisdom and the grace to take care of them so that they would see a real man of God that is willing to pastor them and to lead them properly and to give them proper instruction. And we know that's his heart and just give him the ability to do so and he'll be off and running. We thank you for that, Lord. We also pray for anybody that's not here. Tom Alley did not come tonight, which is as rare as uh, uh, 
anything I can think of, and so we pray that he's okay, and we certainly uh, lift him up, and Steve is not here because of uh, some problems with his family. We lift him up and his family, and we certainly ask that you bless them and take care of their needs, and Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, let me uh, back this thing up here. Uh, you know what I normally do? I back this up, and then uh, we say goodbye, and we had... Um, uh, Sergio uh, was here online.